in the book of Revelation. Our sermon title for today is Faithful But Faulty. Faithful But Faulty. I would imagine that there are many of you in this room who have that piece of furniture that your spouse may want to get rid of, but that spouse has decided that that recliner is faithful even though it creaks when it opens or you have shut the cat's tail in that. Side note, that's your fault for owning a cat. So, <laughs> Chad, kittens are so cute. You know kittens turn into cats. So, we faithful but faulty. Revelation chapter 2, we've been looking at these churches the last, three, the last two weeks. This is the third of the churches in Revelation. And as we peer into this, we begin to ask the same questions that we ask every week. What do we learn about the church? What does the church and what does this letter say about Jesus? And what does it say to us? What can we learn about the church? What does this text say about Jesus? And what does it say to us? Go with me to Revelation 2, picking up in verse 12. I'm going to read this text over us. We will pray and we will dive in together. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols." You practice sexual immorality, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war, war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus, we pray today that as we look into this word, that we will be a people who see ourselves in the midst of it. And that our hearts and our minds will respond to what you teach us. And as we hear from you, God, I pray that it will change the way that we live, change the way that we move, change the way that we interact, change the way that we act, change the way that we react. God, guide us from your word because without your guidance, we would walk in darkness. So by the power of your word and the presence of your spirit, let us be a church that moves forward, going to war with the difficult things that are around us. Because we believe that Jesus is better. We ask all this in his name. And everyone says, Amen. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The word of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Uh, I moved to Lake Jackson in March of this year. And 
in September, a law was put into place that I was unfamiliar with. And I learned it from various church members. And one, and, and I learned it from social media. I learned that beginning on September the 1st, that you had the legal right to carry a sword in the state of Texas. That's amazing. And not too long after I learned this fact, I was having a text message conversation with another church member who told me that he did not have time to hang out that night because there was a chipmunk or a mouse or a squirrel in his attic and that he had to kill it with a sword. My personal interaction with sword carriers has increased by 200% since I've moved to this city. Jesus talks about a sword. The, the one, he says, the word of him who has a sharp, two-edged sword. Jesus comes at this saying that he's carrying a sword. Why would this matter? What's the point of this? Well, in every introduction, Jesus is speaking to the very particular issues of the church that he's conversing with. And as he talks to the church at Pergamum, one of the things that he notices as he introduces himself, and one of the things that he speaks to is, this church has a weird view of judgment. Here's how it worked. Uh, the emperor permitted the governor of Pergamum to wear a sword. And the, the Roman leadership, they could execute anyone who disobeyed the orders of the governor. So you did not have to have Rome's, rule any, Rome's ruling anymore on someone who had crossed the governor of the city. The governor could come in with a sword. It was called the right of the sword. It's what it's been called throughout history. It's the idea of executing and dealing justice on those who deserve justice. Capital punishment cases did not have to be referred to Rome. The proconsul at Pergamum decided who lived and who died. Jesus says, I'm the one with a sharp two-edged sword because I see the way that you're treating my people and... You're deciding who lives and who dies. But ultimately that belongs to me. In every one of these introductions, honestly, in 2017, we could close it out with hashtag Jesus. Jesus has just spoken to the situation and scenario of the church about himself. And he has inserted himself into this situation. He has placed himself in the midst of the reign and rule of these various churches, whether it be Ephesus or Smyrna, or Pergamum, or the ones that we'll look at over the next few weeks that I can't pronounce yet. And as Jesus inserts himself, it's always, I see what you're doing, but don't forget who I am. And I wonder sometimes for us, as, as we look at the Christian faith, and as we try to practice the Christian faith, if it's a demonstration of us seeing Jesus, Jesus and saying... We see who he is and that leads us to what we're doing. Or if he looks at us and says, I see what you're doing, but you've forgotten who I am. The church at Pergamum, they dealt with a few issues, but they were faithful people. If you're writing words down, the word for today, one of the words for today is faithful. We see that in verse 13. The word is faithful. I know where you dwell, 
where Satan's throne is. Well, that's not... That doesn't sound great. Doesn't sound like the best neighborhood where Satan's throne happens to be. Yeah, you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. Jesus, again, referencing the fact that Pergamum was able to dish out what they viewed as judgment, though distorted, on Antipas for standing up for Jesus. Yeah, and the church clings to Jesus. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, when we read a phrase like that, our minds and our imaginations have to go to a dark place. To a place that seems as if it has been forgotten by all of the light and all of God's wisdom and all of God's people. I drove to a portion of Houston the other day where my friend Jaime Garcia is a pastor. And when he got there, the church had shrunk because for whatever reason, people had moved out of the neighborhood where the church was and various other things had moved themselves into the neighborhood. And he pointed to corners and said that the prostitution takes place there. And he told me where you could buy drugs here and here and here. And he showed me around his town as to the, the part of Houston in which he lives. And as he showed me this, you and I, if we were on that tour with Jaime, we would say, this is a dark place. It's a bad place. It's a place where there is no light. Yet this church, Bethel, where he's the pastor... It is light in the midst of the flooding that we've dealt with here and that, has been, that Houston has been dealing with. Jaime was out going from place to place, picking people up and, and taking them to shelter. He didn't ask if you were a prostitute or a drug dealer. He just threw you in his truck. He took you to where you needed to be. It's the idea of light... And darkness, that seems to be a very obvious example. Prostitutes, drugs, evil and wickedness, blatant evil and wickedness. But what about when evil and wickedness is more subtle? Because for us to believe that we can live here and it's any less wicked than various parts of Houston or Las Vegas or Atlantic City, that's elitist and sinful on our part. We have just chosen to view certain forms of sin as acceptable. But pride is just as sinful as prostitution. And as viewing the world that God has placed us in as this utopia, is saying that this is ultimate when Jesus has said that He is. The world that we live in is just as sinful. It's just a little more socially acceptable. But God has called us to be a light in the midst of that. To declare that darkness doesn't get to win ultimately. And though we see the darkness of the things that happen on the news as the worst vision of sin. We glance over things every day that are just as sinful 
Because we have allowed various ideas about sin to merge themselves with our faith. It's the phrases that you look at when you look, when you look at a place like Rome. When we begin to talk about compromise and how compromise works and why compromise is even there. Phrases that you and I use as moms and dads. When we break our own promises because after all we're compromising with our children. Help me out. Uh, one phrase that is a very popular compromise phrase is to go with the flow. Look at you guys. This is six months in. We're making it happen. Uh, <laughs> another popular phrase that we, we say to our kids when they've been dealing with us and negotiating with us and they're trying to barter with us is, I'll tell you what. And on the other end of that what is you doing something you did not intend to do. Can I get an amen? Here's a popular one. When in Rome, we should what? Do what the Romans do. That's the world that Jesus deals with when he looks at Pergamum and he sees that there is this idea there of, of faultiness creeping into their faith. However, what he said is... We see it creeping in, but there are some of you who are holding fast. Faithful, fast. Holding fast. What does it mean to hold fast to the name of Jesus? Jesus actually points out through these two chapters to the churches the importance of his name and why his name matters. In 2 verse 3, if you're a note taker, it says, I know you are enduring patiently and you are bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. In 2 verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. In 3 verse 8, Jesus says this, I know your works, behold... I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Verse 12 of chapter 3, Jesus says this, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of, of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of, God, of my God and the name of the city of my God. Jesus actually seems to care about his reputation when we look through the scriptures. The question that that causes us and forces us to ask is, do our lives say that we don't care about his reputation? Is what is acceptable, really unacceptable? It just seems to be a little more convenient for us. To hold fast to something. I believe that since 2012, the injuries of children between the ages of 2 and 11 will increase, when we look back at the record books, will have increased drastically. And the reason for that is three words, American Ninja Warrior. So uh, and we've actually got a little bit of that happening in our house. The other day, Hope was outside trimming Charlie's fingernails at the bottom of the slide. And as... She is doing this. Alder keeps sliding into her back over and over and over and over and over. He goes back to the top of the slide. But this time, he does not slide down the slide. He decides to jump off of the slide. If you've noticed my two-year-old, you will realize that he's wearing a little blue cast on one of his feet. That's not because we're this fashion-forward family. He broke a bone. 
the idea of American Ninja Warrior is it's this show where people move from one obstacle to the next and they're all very muscular hobbits, like five seven and shorter. But as they go from one place to the next, there are always these times where they have to stop and cling to something. Because clinging to whatever that thing is, whether it's the bar or, or the Solomon ladder or, or whatever, the cling is them holding fast. Jesus says here, hold fast. Hold fast to my name. In the midst of a world in which it doesn't seem like many people want to hold fast to Jesus and the truth of who he is, are we as believers in this community who God has called to be light in the midst of what seems at times to be acceptable darkness clinging fastly to his name? Jesus cares about his name. But we see the faultiness in, in Revelation chapter 3. We move from the faithfulness and holding fast to we see what's faulty about them. But I have a few things against you. And don't you always love these lists? When you and the one that you love sit down and everything's going really well and they're telling you how wonderful they are and how much they care about you. Or when you sit down with your boss and he tells you how great of a job you're doing. But I got a few things to tell you. And the few things that Jesus shares with them are throwbacks to the Old Testament. You have some there who hold the teachings of, the, of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and that they may practice sexual immorality. Hold up. We've got to figure out who Balaam is first. Balaam's the guy who rode the donkey in Numbers chapter 23, 22. And when we look at the story, there's a king named Balak of Moab, and he wants to uh, overcome and defeat Israel. And it seems that Israel is at a very strong place in their power, a height of their power. But Balaam knows that he needs to call a curse down, or Balak knows that he needs to have some prophet come in to call a curse down on them. So he contacts Balaam. Balaam comes in and can't curse them. Because there's all these underlying rules of being a prophet. But Balaam wants the money that Balak's offering him to defeat Israel. So he tells them how to defeat Israel. He tells them how to overthrow Israel, not with a curse, not with this blatant thing, but with corruption. Moabite women are used to tempt the nation of Israel's soldiers, many of whom who are married. And these Jewish men have affairs with Moabite women who hold to a different faith. And over time, they adopt their rituals and their practices. And they compromise the integrity of the people of God. Jesus points out to the church at Pergamum. You are allowing corruption to come in for the sake of convenience. Because that's the picture that we've had painted for us by Balaam and Balak. Though you hold fast to what is true, 
there are times when we see this seeping in. How often do we let sin seep into us? How often do we allow things that we know are wrong, yet they don't seem to be so wrong, become part of our everyday? This isn't allowing bad things to be part of us. It's allowing dead things to take hold of us. Jesus uses this to point out how they're dealing with this group called the Nicolaitans. Go with me to verse 15. They taught that Christians ought to remain members of the pagan clubs. That they might do so without disloyalty to their faith. So one of the key teachings of Nicolaitia was that Christians could be part of other religious groups and that would not impact or affect their actual faith. That's not true. And I think every Bible-believing Christian in this room would look and we would say, that's not true. We would never associate ourselves with, with a faith that was not ours. Yet we've forgotten that faith manifests itself in multiple ways. Because there are people who have no faith in God whatsoever that have a belief in politics or a belief in we could just make a long, long laundry list of places where we have assimilated ourselves and associated ourselves with things where we have made God less than. We have taken away from who God is. And Jesus says here, don't allow this to come in. Shepherd was four years old. He's our oldest son. Hope had been to visit me at the top of a mountain in near Chattanooga where I was speaking to a group of teenagers. And when she got home, she gave me the phone call which led with these words, you'll never believe what Shepherd has done. Moms and dads, let me know if you've ever gotten that phone call from your spouse just with a raised hand right now. So I can know I'm not the only one who feels this. You'll never believe what Shepard has done. Tell me. She said, well, I had Charlie in the van. And I needed to take Charlie inside. So I took Charlie inside. And as I'm walking inside, I noticed that there is a dead rabbit in our driveway. And I gave Shepard one instruction. Don't touch the rabbit. Which, moms, let's be real, moms and dads. That, that's pretty low-end rule. Do whatever you want. Don't touch the rabbit. The rabbit was the tree in the middle of the garden for Shepherd. She walks back outside, opens the door. Shepherd's standing on the back porch steps, and as she looks at him, he has the look on his face that your child has when they have done something wrong. And she said, Shepherd, did you touch that rabbit? No. No. Mama breathed a sigh of relief. And Shepherd said, I picked him up. <laughs> and I hugged him. And I kissed him on the mouth. 
And my wife was forced to ask Shepard a question that no parent should ever have to ask their child. Shepard, why would you ever kiss a dead rabbit? And Shepard said, Mama, just because he's dead does not mean he's not a cute friend. That's so sweet. But imagine if Shepard's a better liar. Imagine that Shepard tells his mom that he did not touch the rabbit. Because we don't know how long that rabbit had been dead. Imagine he walks in and she's fixed him a sandwich to eat before he goes to bed. And somehow he doesn't wash his hands. And he eats his sandwich with those dead rabbit hands. He then goes to play with his baby brother with those same dead rabbit hands. And what started as an interaction with a cute friend has possibly turned into a major situation at our home. Because death has to be dealt with. That's what the scripture says to us about death. That Jesus has overcome it, yet we're still here and we have to deal with this daily. When Jesus looks at the church at Pergamum, he, he sees that there are dead things present and these other faiths that they're allowing to infiltrate theirs. And he's saying, if those things are going to infiltrate your faith, then eventually for you, that faith will be compromised. And a compromised Christianity turns into a cold Christianity. And that means that eventually we get a non-Christianity. What things are infiltrating your faith right now? What things are you allowing to creep in and take hold and do what they're not intended to do? What's scooting in on you? Jesus does tell us how to deal with this. The pattern of every one of these letters is the same. He opens up with an introduction, hashtag Jesus. He ends and says... But we can move forward. And that move forward is helpful for us because it lets us know that these churches were people of faith. You can move forward. If, you're, if they're not believers, there's no moving forward because there's no forward for them. Yet they're believers. And Jesus says this in verse 16. Therefore, repent. As we've said week to week, repentance is not just turning away from, it's turning towards something else, turning towards Jesus. Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with a sword of my mouth. Again, he brings this idea of the sword up. This is the only one of these churches that gets the sword mentioned because it's such a big deal in Pergamum. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. So, that phrase, to the one who conquers, to the one who's working against what I've just, the picture I've just painted. I'm going to give you the hidden manna. Now, manna for the Jewish people is a really big deal. Manna for those who have become Christians. Because of the Jewish people, they see these stories of Jesus. Jesus talked about manna. Jesus delivered bread from heaven when he fed 20,000 people. It's a big, big deal. I'll give you the, the hidden manna. Well, what's that? It, 
Manna in the Bible is what sustained the people. So he says to those who are standing up in the face of opposition and in the face of struggle with compromise, I'm going to sustain you. And I think some of us may even need to hear that today as we look in our own lives, as we are either going to war against sinful things, trying to infiltrate and compromise us, or if we've already been compromised, Jesus would say, repent, because I'll sustain you. I promise I will. He, he says this as well. I will give him a wife. Now, in this world, they, they had a system of, of how they dealt out judgment. And a, a white marble meant that you were acquitted. A black marble meant that you were guilty. And Jesus says to those who hold fast, to those who are his, I'm going, you're acquitted. You're free, you're clean, you're provided for, you're, you're all of these things. No matter how much the governor of Pergamum would attempt to deal out justice on you, you are not guilty. And with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Anytime that we cave into idols... It's because there's some type of intimacy that's lacking. And Jesus sees that this church at Pergamum, they were seeking after intimacy. And I don't know if the church wasn't dealing it out. But he says that he will be that. And that's why we encourage uh, you and we, we want our faith family to be, to be plugging in to life groups even now. That's why we want our life groups linked to what we do every Sunday from the pulpit. That's why we encourage our church to think through the text that we preach every week. We want to make sure that we are growing together, moving forward as a faith family, intimately connected to what Jesus is showing us from his word. And Jesus says, I, I, I want you to know as you have, you have sought after the intimacy of these idols that, that I'm better than that. I'm going to give you a special name, a new name. And no one knows it except the one who receives it. I'm going to give you a name that's just yours. I was talking about my kids a lot this morning. If you don't like people who talk about their kids... Brazos Point to great church, and there are other ones that you could go to. But my kids, they, they, they all call me Daddy name. And I think all of us, that's the most popular one. Daddy. Guys, help me out. How many of you remember the first time you were called Daddy? Right? Mamas, the first time they called you Mama? Hands. Benoli, in the midst of her lifelong rebellion, she'll call me something a little different. And it's not anything weird. I don't even know where she learned it. But she'll call me Daddy-O. And it's my favorite. And it's just from her. 
It's a unique name given. Jesus says to this church, as we move forward, the final word we're looking at. As we as believers go forward from me confronting you about your sin issue. Don't forget that I'm going to sustain you. Never lose sight of the fact that I have declared you not guilty. And know that we have a special name. I have a special name for you. I think when believers struggle and shift away from the Christian faith, it's a lot of times tied to a struggle and shift from God's Word and that we forget that we matter to Him. So for every one of you in this room, I don't know where you are. But I do want you to know that the Bible teaches over and over and over that you matter to Jesus. You matter to Him and He has said, you are not guilty. You matter to Him and He has said, I will provide for you and sustain you. You matter to Him and He's given you a special name. So we move forward because of that. Not because of who we are, but because of what He's done. Not because of what we can make right, but because of who who He's made right. We belong to Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Band's getting in place. We're grateful for these guys. They work so hard every Sunday to make sure that, that our worship time is is moving us in a certain direction. And songs that are selected and the time that they invest in preparation on their own. We do these things because we want our faith family here to know that we do matter to Jesus. That He cares for you, that He loves you, that He is for you. That all things work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes, that you matter. So we choose to move forward as people of faith because we know that Jesus has declared ultimately you're not guilty. I'm going to take care of you. You matter. So help me out this morning with your heads bowed. I'm looking and I'm it. If you would say sometimes I don't feel like I matter to God. Could you raise your hand so I can see that, so I can be praying for you as the week goes forward? Sometimes I don't feel like I matter. Hand up, hand up, hand up, hand up. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I see those. I see those. I see those. We see those. You do. I would pray that we would surround you. Any questions about any of this, please. Grab me after worship. Let's schedule a time for us to sit down and, and, and work through that together. If you need me even now, as the band leads us in worship, I'll be at, at the front of the room on your right-hand side. I'd love to pray for you. I'd love to be able to... That's it. Just pray that God would remind you that you do matter. Jesus, we thank you for today. We thank you that your word 
speaks true things over us. And God, over this body of believers who you are growing even now, bringing together even now, who are you are who you are uniting through tragedy and difficulty even now. God, I pray that we will not forget that we matter. For those who may not know you, Jesus, I pray that they will run to you to be declared not guilty, to get a new name. God, that they will hold to you as the one who sustains. Because God, I believe when I look at Pergamum, I see, I see myself in this church more than the rest. Faithful and faulty. But I want to go forward. We ask all this, Jesus. In your powerful name, we stand together and sing again. I'm over here if you need me.